You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello, everyone. I am your host, Mari Fagel. This is my lovely co-host, Ebony Williams, and joined by a special guest today on Justice is Served. This is Brian Panish. He was the attorney who represented the Jackson family in the most recent trial against AEG. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thank you, Mari. It's a pleasure to be here. So, okay. First question off the bat. Last week, the verdict was read. This was after five months of trial. What was your reaction after the verdict was read? Well, obviously, we were disappointed in the verdict. When talking to the jurors, it appears that they were confused about one of the questions on the verdict form. But, you know, we respect the jury system and respect all the work that they put into the case. And we're going to look at our options and proceed from here. Brian, let me ask you, you said uh, there might have been some confusion for many jurors around one of those questions. Can you share with us what that uh, instruction was? Sure. The claim was negligent hiring, retention, and supervision, all three separate parts of the claim. Right. First, the jurors had to decide, did AEG hire Dr. Murray, either by themselves or in conjunction with Michael Jackson? They found 12 to 0 that that was the case. The next question they had to decide was, was Dr. Murray fit and competent for the position for which he was hired. Now, that doesn't mean just at the time of hiring. It means throughout the time, and they thought that they only had to determine whether he was fit and competent at the time he was hired, which he was a physician being hired to be a general physician, which he was qualified and licensed doctor. But our claim really thrust upon the deterioration of Michael's condition over 60 days and the lack of anything being done and the warnings that AEG had and ignored. Now, what went on in terms of choosing those questions and the wording of them on the verdict form? Did you fight for a different wording of that second question? Yeah, we did. We wanted it to say at any time, and the judge made a ruling that the one that she gave should just say for at the time of hiring. Hmm. And that really was a dispute. And unfortunately, it appears, based on our investigation discussion with the jurors, that they answered the question, yes, he was fit and competent when he was hired, but they never answered the question, was he fit and competent as he was retained throughout the time that he worked and in when they were supervising him. Now, we know that, you know, th- that is a very, very important aspect of trial, jury instructions and the wording of that. Is that going to be something you guys challenge on appeal? Yeah, we're looking into that right now, and we're interviewing all the jurors and talking to appellate lawyers, and we certainly uh, are not dismissing that. Obviously, there was a lot put into the case. We think that the case went well. We think that we proved what we had to prove, and we're going to investigate what we should do from here on. Now, would another grounds for appeal that you're looking into be whether the original causes of action in the complaint, can you discuss those, uh, whether those were wrongfully dismissed? Well, obviously, we had other claims, such as that Dr. Murray was working as a, a course and scope employee of AEG Live. That was dismissed by the court and a general negligence claim. So those also can be appealed and will be up to the appellate lawyers to decide how to proceed in that regard. Can you share with us um, 
after that type of verdict, a disappointing verdict uh, by your own statement, comes down, how do you as, as the family attorney deal with the personal aspect of this and, and, and talk to Katherine Jackson, who clearly was very emotionally charged, understandably so, during this process? Well, I, I think the most important thing is, is our clients. That's why we do what we do. And Catherine is a, is a fantastic client, not to mention a fantastic person. She was very appreciative for the job that we did for her. She was there nearly every day and saw, and she was grateful that the jury got to see what a great person Michael was off the stage, what a great father and son he was. And she was also grateful that we did prove that AEG hired the doctor that killed her son. And those answers to those questions she got, and the public really got to see more about Michael and, and what kind of person he really was. Now, some commentators, Nancy Grace among them, felt that this case was a money grab by the Jackson family. They are already profiting off him after his death, and now they're going after more money. So what is your response to those people? Well, I would say Nancy Grace doesn't know anything about the case, number one. But really, the case was a search for the truth and to find some answers on what really did AEG know and what did they do. And by uncovering a lot of the internal emails and the actions of AEG, they were able to expose what really happened and what really happened to Michael and what his condition was like and what AEG failed to do to, to help Michael. And it really it came down to AEG was to get the show on the road at any cost, and they, they overrode Michael. And unfortunately, Michael was desperate and took measures that a, a normal person wouldn't take had he not been in such a desperate situation being pressured. And I think that's why the verdict, I'll speak for myself and many others in the legal community, was a bit surprising because there were these almost two seemingly contradictory conclusions that, that the jury came to. As you said, finding that AEG was indeed responsible for the hiring of this doctor, but then not seeing his his overall behavior and scope problematic or negligent. And and then when you look at the fact that he's right now serving a sentence on a man, um, you know, manslaughter conviction, th- that doesn't seem to flush for a lot of us. Can you talk about, you know, some of these contradictions? Well, you know, I think, you know, there's a difference between reality and the law. Right. And the law requires certain things to be proved. And in this case, there's no question that Dr. Murray's unfit and incompetent for what he did to Michael. And I think the jurors all agreed with it. It was the way the question was phrased was he fit and competent when hired to be a general practice doctor, and he was a licensed physician, and had he followed his uh, Hippocratic Oath, he would have been competent at that time. But it's really deeper than that, and it's as AEG uh, continued on to rehearse and get ready for the This Is It show that Dr. Murray's incompetence became to show more and more. And really it was the ethical dilemma that he was placed in a conflict of interest and a three-party relationship where one party Mm -hmm. has a contract with somebody else's doctor and keeps control. And that really was the crux of what drove Dr. Murray to do what he did. But jurors didn't ask any questions while they were deliberating to clear up that confusion? You know, they didn't. They said that they wanted to ask questions, but they didn't. Speaking of the jury, um, myself and many others say that jury selection, probably one of, if not the most important aspect of, of the trial process. Can you just give us a little insight as to kind of what you were thinking when you were going through Vordier and, and kind of what you wanted to see reflected in the jury that you selected? Well, I think the jury uh, was fairly selected by both sides. I believe it was a very diverse uh, group, both in age, race, uh, gender, six male, 
six female, all from different backgrounds. And I thought we had a pretty diverse jury, uh, and, and I liked the jurors. What we were looking for was people that didn't have preconceived notions about Michael mm-hmm. and about AG, and it turns out maybe one or two of them already had decided mm-hmm. the case before any evidence was put on, but that's a risk that you always take. Mm-hmm. But I, I really think that the jury system is the best thing that we have and that it, this is the way that we resolve disputes in this country, and that's a fair and just way to do it. Were there any concerns on your part watching the jury during this case? Um, one moment that I'm thinking about specifically was when Kenny Ortega, the tour director, was on stand, and jurors were clapping for him at one point. Did that concern you? No, actually, I think Kenny was a great witness for us. Kenny was honest. Uh, he told it the way it was. He was raising red flags about Michael's condition, and they were right back to him telling him, hey, Kenny, don't burn down the building. We're handling this. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. So I think in what the jurors said at the end, that they thought that Kenny was one of the first witnesses that was totally honest in the case. And I think he he was good for both sides and that he told the truth. Well, Kenny Ortega um, was also featured in the documentary that many of us saw in theaters. Uh, this is it, you know, the documentary kind of following this process from Michael's uh, comeback tour. Did you think that was uh, helpful for your case when, when uh, jurors got to see that? And Michael seeming to be in pretty good shape. Well, you know, actually they told us they didn't think he was in very good mm-hmm. shape. But, you know, you got to remember that Kenny had testified that this is it when it was edited. It was edited mm-hmm. to make Michael look in the best light that it could. Right. So it really was only the best light of Michael. And it was also not intended to be a documentary as to how Michael looked. It was more of the process. So I think that they did watch the This Is It video. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was uh, very critical in their decision, but they did watch it. Now, on our last show, when the jury was deliberating, we discussed uh, the closing arguments and your strategy in terms of quantifying fault uh, in saying, you know, if Michael Jackson is to blame, it's 20%. Why that strategy, and why was comparative fault not presented to the jurors? Well, it, it was presented to the jurors. That was part of what they decided. And, you know, in a case like this, when they're making a claim, it's all about responsibility, right. accountability. I, I believe that it was a case of shared responsibility. And Michael had paid the price with his life. Dr. Yes. Murray had paid the price going to jail and AEG had walked away and made a bunch of money off This Is It and mm-hmm. merchandise for Michael, and they continue to move forward. And I don't think this is a case where it's one side or the other. I think it's a shared responsibility of numerous things coming together, creating the uh, synergy for what happened. Excellent. Excellent. Now, I want to ask about um, another case that just came down yesterday, and I'm sure uh, everyone has been watching this as well, especially in Los Angeles. It was the suit against Toyota, and the jurors found that Toyota was not liable in – this is the first of, of many lawsuits, a car accident uh, where a mother or a woman died – was not liable for this faulty acceleration claim. Mm-hmm. Do you think in today's economic environment – going through all the problems with the economy that jurors in these big, you know, billion-dollar cases are more hesitant to give these payouts to these victims? Yeah, I I don't think so. I think that juries are pretty consistent, and they want to decide the case based on the evidence. In that Toyota case, you know, the main claims that are being made are glitches in the software system. Mm -hmm. In that case, the plaintiff did not proceed on that theory. 
They, produ- they proceeded on the failure of Toyota to include a safety device, a brake override safety system, where um, if the accelerator gets stuck, the brake will override it. So that was kind of a unique case in the way it was tried. The next case, which started uh, this week in Oklahoma City, involves a claim on the electronic system and a glitch in the electronic software. So that'll be more telling as how it goes. But back to your point on jurors, I really think that most people, most people, there's some on both ends, but most people when they serve as jurors, they really take it seriously and they want to get it right and they try to leave everything behind. It's hard to do that if you're out of work and someone's here looking for a large recovery. But I think as a general rule, most jurors do the right thing and, and do not let outside influences affect them. A follow-up to that point, Brian, when you're dealing with uh, celebrities, and, and obviously Michael Jackson, I don't think you get bigger of a celebrity than that, do you think that influences the jurors? Do you think that they would have perhaps dealt with or analyzed the facts of your case differently had uh, you know it just been a layperson? You know, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that the jurors, when it was over, we asked them, did you like Michael Jackson better now or then before the trial? And everyone to a person said they liked him way better now when they heard about him. And the fact that he was a celebrity, you know, we didn't get into that too much, obviously, his performances, but we got into more of him as a person and his relationship with his mother, his relationship with his children really showed him as a regular person away from that celebrity status and there's no one in the world that has had more written in the tabloids or in the internet or on the gossip columns about them than michael jackson and this is really a unique opportunity to see the real person and and take away peel away all the tabloid fodder and and really learn what kind of a great person michael was and when you spoke with jurors afterwards uh was there anything else that surprised you uh I was surprised how attentive they were for how long the mm-hmm. trial was. was I mean, yeah. everyone was there every day. They were very diligent. Uh, they listened. And, you know, at times it gets boring, and, I, and I'm sure for lawyers it was boring, and I'm sure for them it was. But they didn't show that, and they really took the matter very seriously. Excellent. Um, let me ask you, your relationship with opposing counsel during the trial, um, do you feel like jurors pay attention to that? Do you think that that's something that goes into their psyche um, as well? You know, what the jurors told us is they, they liked all the attorneys. Okay. And they thought all the attorneys were professional and did a very good job representing their clients. So I think generally the the back and forth between the lawyers, they might be entertained by it. They don't want to see it too much because it detracts from the case. But in this case, there were some of that. But I think at the end of the day, the lawyers on all sides did a good job representing their clients. Now, you say the jurors liked the attorneys. What about the experts uh, in the case? Uh, specifically, I was there for one of the defense experts that was on, um, Briggs, who discussed um, Michael Jackson's basically claiming that he was washed up, that he had a low popularity score, that he would not have made any money had he lived anyways, and your cross-examination of him was brutal. <laughs> so uh, they, they didn't like Mr. Briggs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think they thought that he just was did not have the experience and that he was going out on a limb and saying certain things. They did like certain expert witnesses in the case. I know they really liked Dr. Seisler who was a sleep uh, expert from Harvard Medical School. Uh, they liked Dr. Formosus, who's an economist. 
And they like various witnesses in the case. You know, they really like some of the, uh, they like Kenny Ortega. Yeah. And they like some of the, uh, they like the Jackson nephews, Taj and TJ Jackson a lot. They really like Prince Jackson. They thought that Prince was a composed, uh, nice gentleman that mm-hmm. kind of made a good impression on how he was raised by his father, Michael, and really, really was for a 16 year old boy. Uh, really did a great job under the pressure and came across as a really genuine person. Now, very early on in the case, uh, Paris Jackson attempted suicide. Can you tell us what that was like, seeing Catherine Jackson and the family having to come in, go through this highly publicized case during this time in their lives, and whether that changed your strategy in terms of obviously not bringing her in? Well, I mean, there's been a lot of things that, that Catherine has had to deal with and the children uh, and it has been hard for all of them. They've done the best they could, but it's certainly not easy for anyone, right. celebrity or not, to lose a parent. And remember, that's their sole parent. And to lose someone that they spent pretty much all the time with. They were out of the country with their father almost all the time. They had been homeschooled, so they spent a lot of time with him. And I think that Catherine is a remarkable person to be able to undertake such a task at 83, 84 years old and to now begin to raise children after she's raised nine children herself to get back into the mix and to to parent along with TJ who's the co-guardian who's doing a fantastic job and I think you know Paris is going to be okay and and Paris is a great young lady and but it's been very hard for her yeah I'll say um I host a talk radio show as well, Brian, and, and one of the things when I heard this trial was was starting, I was, I'm a huge Michael Jackson fan, and I was really concerned about uh, what this trial would mean for the legacy of Michael Jackson, and I agree with you. I think I was pleasantly surprised to see that, if anything, um, it it added and bolstered um, the, the, the humanness and the normalcy of a celebrity that, as you said, struggled with those issues throughout certainly the latter part of his career. So I think a lot of fans really appreciated that approach. Well, and I think the fans are out there supporting Michael. I mean, he has a tremendous following. I've received so many emails and calls from fans that just want to ex- express their appreciation right. for showing the world, you know, what what kind of person Michael really was. And, and I didn't know that before. I had never met him. But having seen and heard... I mean, I have a tremendous respect for Michael and what he did, not only as an entertainer and a father and a, and a parent and a son, but as a humanitarian and all the things that he did around this world and, and his whole attitude about making the universe a, a better place for everyone. Though, so tell us about your strategy in terms of dealing with the fact that he did have a drug history, how did you tackle that in presenting that to jurors? Well, I mean, I think we basically admitted what the, what was mm-hmm. known. Michael Jackson never used any illicit drugs. He didn't use recreational drugs. Michael Jackson, at times, had a problem with opioids. But all of that came about from his severe burns that he suffered Pepsi. while filming the Pepsi. Interestingly enough, the money that he was given from the Pepsi commercial, he donated all the hospitals, set up a burn ward for children. So throughout Michael's life, at times of stress and pain, which he continually struggled with pain, not only in his scalp from the surgeries, but in his back from a fall that he had in Munich, yeah. he had some struggles with opioids. However, he had not had any problems or use of opioids for uh, five or six years before he began the This Is It 
preparations. And I think with the preparations and the pain, he had some procedures that he underwent where he had used opioids, but he didn't die from opioids. Mm -hmm. And he didn't die from use of uh, illegal drugs or anything like that. He dealt, he died from the overdose of propofol given to him by a physician that shouldn't have done it. And Michael was a person that trusted doctors and he believed doctors and he believed they would do no harm. And unfortunately, Dr. Murray sacrificed that for money and fame. And I think that's the part that resonated as so unfair to a lot of us looking um, from the outside into the case, that AEG seemed to get it both ways. You know, they seemed to be able to profit and benefit fiscally from pushing this thing as far as they could go. But then when when, when the, the house of cards collapsed, and as you said, Michael paid with his life, Dr. Murray went away to prison, AEG didn't seem to bear any responsibility. And I think for many of us, that's why... The you know last week's verdict even still doesn't really feel um, incredibly just. Well, life is not always fair, and the justice system doesn't always come out on the side of right or wrong. The laws are the laws, and you must follow the rule of law, and that's what keeps our society going. I believe that the jurors approached the task in the right way. They took it very seriously. They reviewed the evidence, and based on the instructions they were given, they didn't feel that they could find with us, and for us. And, you know, we have to accept that, at least as, as to this phase of the case. Now, I want to ask you about Dr. Conrad Murray. He um, obviously did not want to testify, but then made allusions to if he if he did testify, it would be a nuclear bomb. So, so what did you think of those comments? I think Dr. Murray's just trying to get attention, as he always has. I mean, Dr. Murray still has not accepted any responsibility. He denies that he has any responsibility. He was convicted by a jury. He was sentenced to the maximum sentence by the judge. And he still wants to be out there gaining attention. Uh, I think Dr. Murray should come forward and tell the truth and admit what he's done. And he has chosen not to do that and to continue to be in denial. And when I hear some of the things he says, it's really incredible. And the juror said, you know, that, that Dr. Murray claimed this was a vindication of him was not yeah. what it was at yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to that point, I think, you know, most of us know, first of all, very different standards of proof. Mm-hmm. You're talking about a civil case versus a criminal case. And that criminal uh, jury has already spoken. So that's clear. Well, right. uh, Brian, you're going to stay with us, right, for our, sure. our docket? Excellent. All right, guys. We're going to move on now to this week's uh, celebrity docket. And we've got quite a few interesting stories. All right. First story up. No surprise here. Chris Jenner and Bruce Jenner separating, possibly going towards divorce, Chris Jenner says. But also, she says they could possibly reconcile. So just her full statement there. But in the case of divorce, we know that there's no prenup with this marriage. Apparently there's no prenup. That is shocking to me because this was his third marriage and her second marriage, and he was very famous going into this as a former Olympic athlete. The concern here, and I want to get your take on this, Brian, is Bruce Jenner very well could claim that he agreed to take a step back in his career, his, you know, motivational speaking, his speaking in terms of on on behalf of the Olympics, to raise the children, the younger children, while Chris promoted the family. Do you think that will hurt Chris Jenner in the end if this does come to a divorce. Well, I think it goes both ways. You know, sometimes it's the husband that's out there and the wife steps back. And I don't see why Bruce, if if he did do that, why he shouldn't be afforded the same rights as as a female spouse. I mean, there is gender equality. And, yes, and if Bruce did take a step back so that Chris could be out promoting the family, 
and they they uh, amassed this great wealth, then he should certainly share in it. Agreed. I have to say, Mara, though, this doesn't surprise me at all that there's allegedly no prenup because Chris Jenner would never sign a prenup. Let's really look. I mean, seriously speaking, like, let's be serious. She just wouldn't. She wouldn't go into a marriage uh, that way from anything I've seen of her. And I also think this is where. Um, her very um, aggressive personality and persona, public persona, might come back and hurt her um, if this thing actually goes to a trial. And there has to be determination of whether, you know, and that's that magical language. Uh, we've got this uh, statement here from Bruce's attorney saying that he, uh, you know, subjugated himself and his career, his motivational speaking um, to be the stay at home dad. That's key language because we know that that implies that he was somehow the dependent spouse. Yeah, that's just an attorney um, p- giving his opinion on the case. Yeah. They haven't gotten okay, attorneys fine. involved at this point right. uh, because, as you said, they are right now just separated and do not have plans for divorce. But it will be interesting to see how much of this profit they amassed through the Kardashians is Kris Jenner's and not the three girls or the younger girls. Yeah. Well, I think anything that's Chris's property, that's community. Mm-hmm. And and that's just what it is. And I think, you know, I, I agree with Brian here. Gender equality goes both ways. And Bruce, I think, has a very, I mean, he looks like the under, like the, the sidekick in the marriage anyway, just from the outside looking in. So I think he has a strong argument that he was indeed the dependent spouse. Chris had become the the, the supporting spouse, and I think he could move forward and get something out of this for sure. All right, next case up, and this one's a big one, Aaron Hernandez, uh, the New Eng- former New England Patriot charged with first-degree murder uh, along with some accomplices of his. So this week, Wednesday, he had a pretrial hearing mm-hmm. in which his lawyers were asking for a formal gag order, and also the prosecutors were asking the judge to recuse herself. Um Brian, thoughts on that? Is that is that kind of kind of gutsy there, asking a judge, yeah. a sitting judge, to recuse herself? I think it's pretty risky. Mm-hmm. However, they must have a good reason for it. I know that they claim in another case the judge had made rulings against them. That usually isn't a reason just right. to get the judge off the case. Right. And in the gag order, uh, I think you know the prosecution has been leaking a lot of information by way of public documents and search warrants, and certainly it wouldn't be fair to not let Aaron Hernandez's attorneys respond and only get one side out. You know, you do have the First Amendment, Mm -hmm. freedom of speech. Uh, It's very tough to gag attorneys. It is. But you have the Sixth Amendment, too, which talks about a fair trial. Well, and and if only one side's getting information out, the prosecution, it's not fair to Aaron Hernandez Mm -hmm. to get his side out. He he claims he's innocent. Uh, He's pled not guilty. He claims he's going to be acquitted at trial. Mm -hmm. And we do have a presumption in this country of innocence until proven guilty. So Mm -hmm. would hope that he could get a fair trial based on the merits. And his attorneys would have the opportunity to speak out on his behalf. Mari, were you surprised that the judge did not enforce a formal gag order at this pretrial hearing? No, I, I wasn't surprised by that. I was surprised by this recusal request, but we have seen it before. We saw this in the George Zimmerman case uh, because they felt that the judge um, during the bond hearing, he would end up showing bias towards George Zimmerman in the actual trial. And they did end up with a new judge. They went through three judges in that case. Uh, and so it will be interesting to see how that comes out. But I do think it's a risky move. He said that uh, the prosecutor said after a 2010 murder trial, the judge showed, quote, antagonism towards the government throughout the entire case. And so if the judge does not recuse herself, his words are out there and his request is out there. And she's very much aware of that. That's true. But I'll say the other side of that, though, is some judges, if, you know, have an accusation of being biased, they kind of maybe turn in the opposite direction to to almost 
overcompensate to show a non-biased approach. So I think that could maybe work both ways. And I think that's yeah. human nature. Yeah. And that to show that you're not biased, mm-hmm. and maybe that was the reason why they did it. Could be. Could be incredibly brilliant strategy on their part. Even though I will say I was surprised that there was no formal gag order only because this is such a high-profile case, and I would think that this judge would want to err on the side of caution and, pre- pre- you know, really preserve whatever verdict comes down because that to me could probably be an appeal appealable issue you know this this pre-trial media coverage well i want to ask you brian because uh mark garagos who we'll have on in a couple weeks um he has said that he thinks gag orders he doesn't he doesn't like them because they ask for a gag order and if they get it then he he says law enforcement continues to leak things and all it leads to is his side not being able to get their story out do you agree with that statement i, I agree with mark completely because it's not fair if one story can get one side can get their story out without talking and the other side can't do anything it's just not a level playing field so either everyone talks right. or no one talks right right and that's the sad thing right is that they have these gag orders issued and people don't respect them and that, that's unfortunate. All right, next up, CeeLo Green, the um, uh, one of the judges on the hit show, The Voice. He's being accused by a Los Angeles woman of sexual assault, spiking her drink um, after she met him in an L.A. sushi restaurant last year. She claims one thing led to another, and the next thing she knew, she was naked in CeeLo Green's bed. Um, but Maureen and I were talking before the show. There's just some sketchy facts surrounding this, like the fact that she claims she has a recording. Randomly enough, I guess she just pressed record to get uh, CeeLo apologizing to her for allegedly, um, you know, using ecstasy or some other illicit drug. Does that sound about right to you, Brian? Well, what, what sounds fishy to me is that the government or the DA investigated, filed no charges. Then a year later, after she hired a civil attorney and and couldn't get any money that she went back to press the civil the criminal case right certainly it appears to be some inconsistency there yeah right Mari. i mean what, what does that say about the actual evidence the da has to even move forward i mean they said there was a lack of evidence the first time around now CeeLo's side is claiming that she only went to the police after hiring a civil attorney and them turning down a request for money now brian i want to ask you how how often does that happen that the DA's office says, okay, insufficient evidence, closes the case, and then reopens it, reinvestigates? They're, now they're looking at toxicology reports. They're trying to find more witnesses. Does that happen very often? I, I don't think it does, and there must be some new evidence that they come forward, maybe this recording. But I, I do find that odd that they just coincidentally have a recording of the person making a confession. Yeah. That seems to be somewhat premeditated. I, right. I don't tape most of my phone calls or any and I'm sure most people don't. Not to mention if... I wouldn't if, know if, how to do it. Right, right. <laughs> There's that. And then if you're under the influence, where's your mental capacity to have the thought of mind to record? It just... It seems like it was after the fact yeah. that she may have called and, and you know asked certain questions and then turned it on. Possibly, possibly. D- either way, though, definitely going to be watching that when she looks a bit sketchy. And and I'll say this last thought, too. With those kind of he said, she said, without a lot of actual physical evidence, credibility is everything. And and she, to me, already kind of starts to have some credibility concerns. All right. Last up on our docket today, Usher and uh, Tamika Foster. Um, we've talked about them before on the program. This seemingly never-ending custody battle. We've so, been talking yeah. about them just as often as we've been talking about Chris Brown. Which is <laughs> saying a lot. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> You're saying a lot. So, uh, Tamika, you know, and I said this, and, and you said it too, Mari. She's not going to give up on these kids. You know, um, Usher is the primary custodian. He He's the guardian, and she's not happy about it. She wants Usher held in contempt for, she claims, continuing to keep her kind of out of the loop, making important family decisions, not letting her know what's going on. Um, she says that he skimped out on parenting classes that they were ordered by court to take, and therefore she wants uh, the judge to have a holding of contempt for him. Success for her on this? I don't like Tamika Foster. Let me tell you why. She, the <laughs> same week that she does this, she posts shirtless photos of Usher online. So, you know, her actions don't really make sense. And it's unfortunate that every little incident, she will use that as ammunition against him. You know, um, a couple months back when his son almost drowned right. in the pool, she then used that as ammunition against him. Now he may be, he may have skipped a couple co-parenting classes, maybe because he's, um, you know, out touring or whatever he's doing. And she's using that again as ammunition against him. And that only ends up hurting the kids in the end. Well, I think the judge is going to look kind of like the boy that cried wolf. I mean, she mm. keeps complaining, complaining. How's he going to know what's real and what isn't? Agreed. That's a really good point because at the end of the day, you know, I know that she they have an upcoming court date where she's wanting a reconsideration of this custody arrangement. She's not making it easy for herself. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not really bringing anything with any real weight to it. And I think ultimately you're right, Brian, that will hurt her in the end. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. Thank you so much for bringing him to us, Mari. This was a fantastic interview. I know everyone's just thrilled that you were able to give us some real insight on the going-ons of this very fascinating case. And I have a feeling it might not even be over. So, Well, let's hope not, and thank yeah. you for having me. Thank you. And now, Brian, um, for people who want to reach out and learn more about you, where can they find you? Uh, PSBlaw.com. Excellent. And Mari, what's your Twitter handle? Where can people find At you? Mari Fagel. I will be posting a link to this show later on. Uh, a lot of MJ fans, trial watchers were very curious to hear what you had to say. So find me at Mari Fagel. And okay. you can find me at Panish31. Oh, excellent. Awesome. <laughs> and find me at Ebony underscore K. I'll be posting as well. Thanks for tuning in. Till next time, this is Justice is Served. Thank you. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, Dario Kristen, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network. If you have questions or comments, tweet us at BHL Online or email us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. For more exclusive content, visit blackhollywoodlive.com. This has been a presentation of the Black Hollywood Live Network. Hollywood redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.